the views and opinions expressed by guests on Connected do not necessarily reflect those of Side Street Studio Arts. Episodes may contain adult language. Welcome back to Connected. I'm Alex Sharp with Side Street Studio Arts, and today we are here with artist, illustrator, Adrian Messino. We're going to talk a little bit about his work and also a pretty big topic in the media today, which is AI and its um, use in artwork and by artists. Um, so first off, Adrian, can you just tell me a little bit about your art and the medium that you prefer to work in? Yeah. Um... I primarily work in watercolor, though I started working with digital art around the same time I started uh, taking illustration seriously. So they've been developing side by side and kind of influencing each other. And um, so digital art really, for me, is like digital drawing and digital painting. Um, And uh, for watercolor, it's... um, I guess like children's book style illustrations, um, really naturey themes and um, uh, uh, expressive uh, landscapes. So that's uh, the focus of my work. Awesome. When did you kind of become interested in art and then also um, more towards illustrating? I started drawing um, around the sixth grade. Uh, I really enjoyed um, anime and manga, uh, and uh, that was kind of pushed on us greatly by like Cartoon Network and um, a lot of big media companies that you know found these really cheap properties from overseas and uh, dubbed them over so they can be in English and. I found the style very eye-catching and so much different than what American cartoons looked like. So I, uh, it was easy to copy. And, you know, the more you copy something, the better you get at doing that thing. Um, and eventually I realized that I liked uh, drawing more than I liked Naruto. So then I just <laughs> kept drawing. Um, and that was mostly pencil. But then um, around... 2011 when I started high school so I started drawing back in like the sixth grade and then I just was you know doodling and stuff on notebook paper and computer paper uh I didn't really have too much interest in like becoming an artist but it was like kind of a novelty like look I can do this thing better than like 90 percent of my classmates um around high school in 2011 when the first tablets were coming out um, my parents got me a Kindle Fire. And so the first, you know, I didn't really know what to do. We These were marketed as web tablets. So they were for streaming and like purchasing things off Amazon. So it was a, a portal to get you to buy Amazon products um, and use their services. But I, I downloaded this app called Autodesk Sketchbook and um, Sketchbook Pro which just had all the the main features, like the, the actual like big package of features. Um, and I was drawing with my finger. So I learned how to make posters and, and things like that using that tablet. 
Um, but I didn't start watercolor until 2015 when I graduated. Um, and watercolor was the big thing on YouTube. All of the artist YouTubers, which was a really great community for a while, um, did lots with watercolor and Copic markers and, and Inktober was coming up in that time. So it was really a beautiful time to get into water media. It was It's very eye-catching and video processes, you know. So it, it's, um yeah, that that's kind of like a lot of it. A lot of my art career has been influenced by like what the new technology available has like really let me experiment with. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic that you bring up, especially with artists, you know, around our age, younger, who grew up with the internet from the very start that um, heavily influenced on what we could do with technology and then also sharing with each other because like you said inktober i remember just watching people do you know their ink drawings every day of a different day in october with different theme and just like being so inspired by that so forcing you to kind of create more for what was trendy at the time online and how that affects us artists as younger artists um, kind of going forward, which is interesting. And to bring up more of the topic of using technology in, in art, last year you did a piece that incorporated AI. Can you talk a little bit about that piece that you did and the process of making it? Yes, last year um, for Side Street's uh, show called Bits and Pieces, um, my partner and I, Roxana Opeña, we, uh, we've always wanted to collaborate, though they, they are, um, there are medium limitations to like how we can collaborate. She primarily works with oil and, you know, as painters, as a painting collaboration, um, watercolor and oil are actually quite opposite. So, it, when we were thinking about what we wanted to do, I think at the end, we decided that what's most important is uh, a fixed image, regardless of medium. And it sparked this idea in me of a, of a mediumlessness. You know, how do we get close to this absence of material and just picture, right? Pure picture. In a lot of cases, to me, that means like the light that radiates from a screen that is quite literally just light um and uh another thing would be the the absolute flatness of printing um from a you know a commercial printer it's absent of any real texture or surface definition um and ink kind of renders itself invisible in our you know we don't really look at the ink, we look at the picture um, for these commercial prints. So using AI was this way to create a an authorless kind of picture or an artistless picture. Like it comes from nowhere, from somewhere on the internet that we can't trace down and um, experimenting uh, with different prompts that that we had written and kind of meshed together from our imaginations 
really made it seem like it was coming from nowhere. You know, th these ideas that come from nowhere that belong to sort of no one, but also everyone it is a, a very interesting kind of like tension that we wanted to illustrate through uh, what we call the grid. Um, tit uh, the title of the piece was um, Thoughts Interrupt Images, Images Interrupt Thoughts. And um, that that was kind of like working it in between thinking like lots of just uh, cognitive back and forth and, and trying to uh, work on or like mold the idea in our heads versus putting it on paper and how meditative and absent of thought that feels sometimes. Mm -hmm. I also liked how you displayed the piece because I think that helped also convey the message. I forget how many like posters or, or prints that you guys had, but you had them strung up with fishing wire between like two poles. And so you couldn't really see the fishing wire. So it was almost like they were suspended just in air, in nothingness, just kind of floating, just like existing. So it kind of emphasize your point that like, it comes from nowhere, but it comes from everything kind of thing. Like that they were just these pieces just kind of floating in time. Um, which was a really cool way to emphasize your point. Um, how did you go about the process of, you know, using the AI software to create these, these images? Yeah. So the specific AI software that I use, um, it feels like a very transparent as I mean, for me, I'm not a coder. I, I I'm not very, uh, savvy with the actual like programming language which in this case is python um it feels very like frankenstein almost so the program itself is called vqgan plus clip and i started working with this one in college uh back in probably 2021 um for some of my um final projects in a in in the digital drawing class that I had um, and my, what I liked about this one is that it shows you the code and it shows you the machine of code, um, the software itself, like running and checking and downloading. And um, it shows you like progress bars. And that's not something that a lot of, uh, web-based software, you know, like um, Dolly or um, these other <laughs> machines that run on, on web browsers will will expose to you. This one shows you each iteration that you ask for. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I really enjoyed about this one is that it felt like a computer software and not a magic box. Um, I, I think... Uh, when you type the code into the, it's kind of this beautiful way that you put it in where it's, you put it, um, a word or a phrase and then followed by a space, uh, forward slash space, and then the next line, and then you can kind of keep filling that prompt out. So it, it has this kind of syntax or like poem structure that you can really kind of get into sculpting. And, and that, that input is the only real input that you have. Um, so what I wanted to do early in college was um, kind of find these textures or patterns or um, 
things that it could produce that are unlike anything a human hand could produce. Um, and I, I don't want it to resemble anything recognizable. Um, so the prompts had to kind of align with that in, in trying to kind of nudge it in a direction that's like absence of human painterly qualities. And even when you do ask it to do things that are like painterly or look handmade or like a natural texture because it's showing you the very early iterations of what it's doing um it those very early ones are where i started finding the most interesting like aspects of of the this new image material that it's producing it was very fragmented kind of like um haunting textures like digital voids that it, it creates i i found those so beautiful so i was like i'm going to use these as overlays to give my paintings this very very interesting texture that nothing else that i could definitely not produce because it's a an unhuman thing that it, the machine is making so yeah uh interesting to kind of like say the software that you used um you know showed you the whole progress from start to finish you know or the progress it was making um so it definitely seems like more of a tool where you mentioned um dolly or um i know that one's the really popular one that i see a lot of people use and kind of be referenced it being like a magic box like you type whatever you want it will give you the image and it's it takes kind of like the tool effect out of it, the customization out of it. it definitely just seems like it'll just kind of produce whatever you ask it for. And that kind of creativity is kind of stripped away a little bit. Um, a lot of like what I've heard AI used for in terms of like writing is if you're having writer's block or a painter having a creative block, you can kind of use AI generate generated tools like, like chat, GPT or anything like that to if I was writing an essay or even like the script to this podcast and I was stuck I could just type in kind of my fragmented ideas and it can give me a starting point to kind of jump forward with my own ideas is that kind of a little bit how you used it within your art as this kind of jumping off point no, I I don't think I ever really looked for it to give me some kind of um, inspiration or motivation. Um, I think that's totally like fair, and and some people have a great amount of skill in painting and writing, um, but are not creative or inspired themselves you know they they need a prompt or they need a something like inktober in order to make pro and produce these like daily art or drawings um these pieces every day you needed a prompt to help guide you i that's definitely a way to work but i don't often think that, that leads to making artwork it really does just go into um 
kind of like a novel product, you know, like um, something that for a painter, I guess, will sell. Or, you know, when you upload it to social media or to the internet, it'll get likes and you'll get that validation feedback loop. And and for writers, um, you know, I, I work in marketing and sometimes I'll um, use Grammarly or Constant Contacts built in like um, generative features and it'll it'll convert bullet points into what's very likely to i guess cause pleasure when you when you read it um and i think that goes into the the painting or the image makers side people who are making pictures and images like what is most likely to hit that pleasure button in the brain um i get that idea from um a book called prediction machines by uh the it's a group of authors um but i believe aj agrawal um it's a book uh, it's an economics book about kind of like what this new technology is letting us do which is cheaper predictions so he kind of theorizes like every time that you see the word ai in an article or in a headline or something, if you predict it, if you swap that word out with cheap prediction, it becomes a different conversation. We start talking about, um, you know, what economically it's, it's going to do. Um, once you get that cheap prediction, you can make judgments you know, and, and he theorizes that the cost of judgment is going to go up and people with good judgment are going to be able to convert these cheap predictions into viable products, you know, and I, I think that so far is very true um, with how I see people using AI online. And... So in your opinion, what is kind of a good balance or a good way to use it. And so you're not just making these kind of quick artwork or, you know, kind of artwork devoid of, of your own kind of create creative thinking. Like what's a good balance in, in using AI in your art? Um, that's a good question. I, I'm not sure. I guess it just depends on, on like various different artists and, um, I guess the reason why you're using AI, I, I can explain like briefly for me, I'm interested in AI because um, a lot of my work, the theory of my work comes in demystifying or kind of taking out of spiritual language art. And um, I just don't think it's a very productive conversation to continue to use these like very old spiritual languages um when we're talking about the process you know that's comes maybe from a idea of like creation versus making um like making we understand that there's a process to doing that but creation is this very mystical and mysterious process that 
you know, when we're using the word AI, we're talking about a very mystical, mysterious process. When we talk about prediction machines, we know what it's doing and we can better describe it. So um, I like using the assets and the products of AI. I think it's just a new material that artists have to make from. And the real judgment that we have to do is how many transformations have we done to that product, that AI product, to make it um, something distinctly ours or something contextualized into art. Um, if you, you know, do this thing, you know, you, you do this... Um, image generating process with an AI and it spits out a picture and you print that picture and you put it in a gallery, the only significant transformation was you transporting that picture to a gallery. There are people who talk about finishing the picture. So they'll take that picture into Photoshop and adjust the painting or the lighting or paint over it and, and make it a little bit more coherent and then print it out, okay, well, you've done a few more transformations to it. Uh, what a threshold is, I think it it depends on, um, I don't know, I, I guess a very critical eye, like a, a, a criticalness of yourself to not just be satisfied with the pretty picture and to want to use this picture for some kind of statement or argument but I don't think there's a, yeah, I don't really think there's a threshold to what counts as a, a good way to use it. Um, I think it's a matter of using it and using it and like keep using it and then calling out phonies, I guess, or calling out people who are being very lazy with the labor or that, that think that it's giving something that it isn't. Um, I think it's very important to, to call out phonies. Yeah. Um, when kind of just like researching AI on my own and, and there's a lot of articles out there that are highly criticized of it. And I think for good reason. But one of ones that I found very interesting, it was actually Harvard Gazette um, published an article talking to their professors in creative in spaces. So like music, filmmaking, um, writing, art, architecture, all this stuff. And was getting their opinions about AI. And to my surprise, a lot of them seemed okay with the use of AI. But multiple of them said that they view it or it should be viewed as a collaborator. And not more so like a means of production. But something that you can collaborate in with to create whatever creative project you're working on, would you feel like that term of collaborator makes sense for AI? Um, when we're talking, when we're using the word AI, I think artificial intelligence refers to something that's very unreal and very fantastic. Um, the truth is that I, I never really believe that there's like, such thing as uh, ascensions or any kind of like consciousness within AI and to 
And to believe that leads you into rabbit holes of thinking that are, to me, unproductive. Like collaborator is already too personified. Mm-hmm. Intelligent is already too personified. Like it, it really doesn't help us get to any conclusions about art to personify artificial intelligence. Um, I collaborate with people. Like I use AI. Mm-hmm. It's a machine. It's like a mechanical pencil. I didn't have to sharpen the pencil, but, you know, I can just click a button and and more lead comes out. And I I may not know how the mechanical pencil works in depth, but I know that it has a very specific function and that I can express the best of that function by using the tool more and more. And um, I don't think we're we've gotten to I think it's a distraction from the actual criticism that we could be giving AI. Um, I think like the conversation of like, what does AI mean for artists is a little bit like, it it does come like this Western privilege of like, we're not going to receive the big brunt of the, the, the global impact that AI is going to have on, you know, the economy, the environment, and like society at large. Uh, And I think uh, instead what artists should be doing is, I guess, using AI to criticize it, to criticize what it, you know, like um, the, the types of pictures that people are making with AI sometimes they're very coherent stunning you know we've gotten past the point i think one of the biggest criticism was like oh look at the hands or the eyes you know they, they're not well that's fixed we fixed that by training ai on hands and faces and all these things now they look really great and not that artists also don't draw terrible hands like it was fed on the terrible hands of artists so we can't like that's not really even a criticism the pictures themselves often are hypersexual of women they are some kind of racial caricature that reminds me of shit that i saw like you know these racist caricatures are like over a hundred years old these fantasies of technology are like the Italian futurists, which, by the way, was like a fascist kind of art movement about white supremacy. Like these things, this technology is just being used to uh, recontextualize very old and harmful ideas. So we can have a criticism about that. And I think that's a productive conversation. But conversations that seek to like I don't know, give a give a justice to AI or like some kind of, you know, it's we've already moved into a too wrong of a direction to where it's obscuring like the facts of AI that it's very harmful to the environment. It has very harmful implications for writers and painters and image makers and uh the way that we have to train AI, we're using people and people's likenesses in a way that 
it's happening too fast for us to really be able to have a, a global conversation about. Um, that's another point that I wanted to bring up because um, that's the main criticism that I see a lot of people talking about when they talk about AI is that AI really only knows the information that is available to it through online. So if you ask it to bring, you know, you write a prompt and you ask it to create something, it's pulling from all the knowledge that it has online. And that is other media made by other artists, um, original pieces a lot of the times, or like you mentioned, pieces that have are over 100 years old that we find a lot of controversy with those images. They pull from all of it. So in the sense, a lot of people say, well, it's never original. And then this kind of very deep conversation comes up of like, well, are we even original? Because you can make the you can have the conversation of everything that we pull through is our knowledge from and our memories and inspiration that we have seen seeing other work and other pieces of media to create our ideas which a lot of people say there are no more original ideas anymore where it's all inspired by something else and people like to make that reference to ai of well it's all coming from inspiration, just like what we would use in our artwork. Um, so my question is like, I don't know, where do you stand on that? Cause it's a very, it, it's a very deep, I think it could go very deep. Um, I feel like it, it's not really black and white when we talk about human consciousness and, and where we draw inspiration from and all of that. Uh, yeah, I, I I think this idea of an over-preciousness with uploading your quote-unquote artwork online and not expecting it to be... So the expectation before was, you know, an automatic credit uh, whenever someone shares it. And that credit comes in like your user profile, your handle or a watermark. Okay. AI bypasses that by only taking the necessary elements, but also that's kind of what people do when they're inspired by other artists. So when people are saying that AI is stealing from them, I would always like to ask, well, like, where did you steal that from? Where did you steal? Like, there is no such thing as as like an original style and even style itself is a contentious word in art history it's become rebranded as we've been forced to become more and more individual and see ourselves as individuals uh, and especially as artists like that keeps us really from coming to some kind of collective consciousness and gaining group bargaining power um so that we're not taken advantage of um, so, uh, it don't upload your work online. You don't have to be a part of this economy of pictures on the internet. If you don't want your artwork stolen, once you upload a picture to Facebook or Instagram or any platform, that platform 
scans the image. It saves a copy of it. It understands what's on that picture and it decides if it's promoted or not. So even before it hits people's eyes, there's been a judgment made on it. And and so that technology has, has been with us for a while. And so you, you can't really go online and, and really expect to for it to be like a fair game, um, especially when those people who made the technology had an unfair advantage to get there. Um, there's a really great essay co-written, I think, by what was um, 10 to 14 authors. Um, a lot of those authors were part of the Google ethics research team. That's such a funny, right? Google and ethics is an incredibly hilarious thing. But the lead authors were Emily Bender and Timnit Gruber. Timnit Gruber was one of the head, the leads of that Google ethics team. And she was ousted from the company because that paper was largely critical of Google and what they were, what they thought they were giving, but it wasn't really doing that. The paper is called On the Dangers of Stochastic Parrots. Can language models be too big? And so there, then there's another word for AI, language model. Natural language models need so much data, uh, human data of language, of, of words, of keywords, of words referencing image, of images that are tagged. And all of that has to be done by human labor. And oftentimes that labor is underpaid and in incredibly abusive conditions. Uh, in this paper, they touch on the fact that a lot of Facebook's data, you know, a, a lot of the the ways that they collect data and then they process that data through um, moderation. So like actual people looking at those pictures and tagging them to be safe or unsafe. A human being has to watch those videos and see those pictures. And that those pictures and those videos are often uh, incredibly racist or violent or sexually graphic, or depict abuse of minors. What are the psychological outcomes of these people being exposed to these things in like little laboratories or cubicles? You know, like it feels very dehumanizing. And that's really the only way that we can, can train these models. So it's very critical of how big and how resource intensive these things are for how not very well that they work at the end of the day. And so the main question, can language models be too big? Uh, yes, they're, they're far too big because we're training them on such big data instead of quality data. Mm -hmm. And if it, you know, because of the technology, the language model technology structure, it demands more and more data to improve when we don't have a very good alternative. Um, it becomes at the forefront and then it's rebranded to be AI and it can obscure a lot of the actual 
harmful outcomes of that technology. Um, picking in all the criticism that AI has, and especially the point that you brought that the internet, I mean, the, the technology is con is continuously changing, is continuously adapting. The internet as a whole is continuing to grow um, and be so largely a part of everyone's lives. Um, I know Dolly, we talked about what's a big one that people use. Um, Apple now has its own AI generator. I saw that Adobe has their own as well, as well as like you can use it in Photoshop and stuff like that. Um, Grammarly uh, has their own AI generator. Like all of these big brands are kind of creating their own version of um, AI generated, whatever, whether it be art or writing or videos or anything like that, as well as a slew of just smaller ones that may not work as good as the bigger ones do, but they're available for free online that anyone can use. Um, do you think that these softwares should be so readily available to people and easy to access? Um, I, I think in a lot of cases, they're helpful, uh, especially like even Google Translate is itself a a type of, of artificial intelligence, you know, a machine learning program. Um, and it, it's a very easy output. A lot of the times that output isn't very um, accurate. And so it, it helps me, a person who is bilingual, quickly reference that translation. But I understand the inconsistencies with that language, with the output. Mm -hmm. I can correct that output in in my final judgment. You know, when I go then to send that that message to someone who only speaks Spanish, uh, most of my jobs have been my, you know, income has been from translation, even before I was very confident in my abilities to translate English to Spanish. This technology being readily available really questions like people's place in the image economy, and that if everyone can make their own unreal representation of things, and if those representations are very, very close to being realistic, you know, that we can perceive them as the real world that we all share and experience, um, it just opens up the door for bad faith actors to be able to like abuse that technology and abuse the attention economy um, by creating deep fake or hyper realities that are based in misinformation and disinformation and can obscure like our perception of real world events that we all need to be on the same page on or they can be incredibly dangerous, you know, AI generated articles that have outdated or, or misleading information or pictures that are generated that lack the inconsistencies that we would normally perceive to, you know, be like, this is fake. This is real. Uh, what happens when it's commercially available is that uh, it, it just, becomes also not just a tool but but a weapon and that weapon 
is best used or or is most effective against people with low uh, media and internet literacy. And we're learning now that that is very important and something that we're going to have to get better as like young people at, at helping others understand and not being like very, uh, I guess what it would be ageist or, um, you know, uh, look down on generations who didn't grow up with this technology to be like, now I, I have to be the one to help you decode these things. Where do we begin? I, I honestly have no clue. And, um, I think that's for me, the most, like, the most interesting question is like, how can we get better at, uh, kind of dissimulating a lot of these things that we're watching and, and looking at um, so that they don't create permanent brain damage, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the last questions I had, which I, I is a little bit, I don't know if it has any really good answer. Um, it was just me thinking about kind of art movements. And um, I would say with the age of the internet, they're really art movements kind of stop off. Like we don't see these big movements and these big artists kind of working in a certain style that is popular at the time and based off what is happening around the world because um, the internet has become such a homogenous place that we all inspire each other or get inspiration from different areas of the world that we didn't have access to beforehand. Um, I mean, even if you look at just, not even just art, but just language, um, a lot of younger people who live in certain areas of the world, like even the United States, like down South, where you would have a typically very heavy accent or like Boston, where there's a very heavy accent. A lot of younger people are growing up without that accent anymore because the internet has created this homogenous way of speaking and I think it's created this way of that we're all kind of watching each other and being inspired by each other. And there is no definitive art movement like there used to be. Um, and I look at AI and I think, well, is this kind of of movement? Is this an art movement that we are going forward with? Um, is this kind of the progression of art? And this is the way it's just heading because I think of my teachers and you probably have similar experiences going to school for art. Um, I had teachers back in high school who refused my painting teacher. He refused to acknowledge that any art done on the computer is art, which is just like crazy because like, I know so many good digital artists and digital painters and illustrators and animators that I'm like, of course you would call that art, of course. But like in his old school kind of way of thinking, that was not art. I had teachers who refused to let you use projectors to trace your images on a canvas because that was not traditional. And they're like, well, I'm just kind of using it to just get an outline. I'm not letting it do my whole piece for me. Like I'm working on this giant canvas. I need a little bit of help. And it's like, no, no technology can touch your oil painting at all um so like you know but now we think well of course you can use digital 
you know, of course, digital art is real art. Of course, you can use a projector to trace your image. You know, it's that's totally fine. We think of this now. So now we're kind of criticizing AI, but do you think it's going to move forward in a space where we kind of look back and we're like, well, yeah, that was just kind of an old school way of thinking. I that that's an interesting question. I I think um, to answer the I guess the question of like artists educators, it's um, artists educators aren't really artists. I I think they can teach like an appreciation or like they can teach a hard skill. Uh, they can't ever teach you to be artists, and so that gives them a profound. Uh, a misguided kind of like idea of what artists were and are and have been in history. And it, you know, it comes from also not understanding art history and, and not understanding art theory. Um, and art theory really is that thing that we've lost um, because it is sometimes very dense and niche and hard to understand. But once you understand I guess the basics of art theory and individual what individual artists are thinking and what their goals are uh you're able to better I think come to arguments that they cannot surpass or that they're just not ready to confront and um I had a teacher you know I did college online before the pandemic and I completed my degree completely virtually um towards the end a large focus of my work was digital based work i had a teacher in my illustration class um ask us to not do digital art for our assignments because it's very uh in vogue or it's it's very popular now she she kind of called it a fad um, and that it wouldn't help us get better at painting. I was like, that's so interesting because I'm not trying to be a better painter. I'm trying to be a better illustrator. The mm -hmm. limits of illustration is not what painting can do. The limits are of painting is what illustration can do. Like we've superseded the need to just paint because we're trying to come up with the more effective image. Uh, and it it is that I guess they're not able to keep up with these new ideas. It comes from a misunderstanding of the ideas um, on art movements. I think art movements have largely been uh, not just isolated to art. It has been a part of uh, a criticism of the world around and so when we look at like modernist movements like like futurism, like impressionism and suprematism from Russia, these things were also tied to a nationalist identity. And as we know, nationalist identities for art and anything led to World War II and World War I. So I'm glad that we don't have art movements because these are signs of incredibly dangerous things. What happened after those large art movements was kind of art collectives 
and artists working together in like cities or regions and um schools so schools of thought became a thing and so universities started to adopt these schools and they became consumed by the industrial complex of like uh academia and things like that so they became very exclusive and so art theory went with it and so art theory being very exclusive alienates people from wanting to to learn about it and wanting to better understand like what is this actual thing that we're doing with these pictures and this art um i think the last thing that i i would like to cite is this book called artificial communication by elena esposito and she kind of proposes the idea that this new technology opens us up to a new form of communication with the new type of communication partner and it opens the door to like well what type of things is it best used for a non-human communication partner um what types of conversations are we able to have with it and uh, it's a good question, and I think it comes to a lot of really great conclusions. Um, I I don't think that AI is going to have as big of an impact in R as we are meant to believe it is. Like, not even NFTs had a very large impact on art. Definitely made a lot of artists who were already rich and popular more rich and popular right and now the crash of nfts and kind of these uh crypto currencies is zero and a lot of people lost a lot of money and i think that's just indicative of like it's marketing it's all marketing we live in a world of like marketing and spectacle and if that's all it is the actual art will the actual art is going to be made by artists and i don't think there's going to be any new artists you know coming out of like this technology i think we also need to contend with the fact that there are really intelligent people who make very intelligent and and good products that aren't artists and they need to come up with their own word and dignity because over inflating the value of your product by using the word art is very harmful to artists and doesn't allow us to uh, really be able to decide what art is currently and what it's best used for and make coherent arguments. We live in a world where anything is anything, you know, everything can be art and everything, everyone is an artist. I don't believe that. I think that's very childish. You know, I think this is something that was repeated to us when we were children and a lot of people still believe it. And it, it is proving to be another way that artists are abused. Now it's frivolous. Now it's, a commodity and there's no way to kind of reclaim that if this is going to be the language that we approach it with now a computer program can be an artist you know like great 
no, we can't give it that power by even using the word AI art. All of these things that I've cited, prediction machines, language models, artificial communication, none of these very intelligent people use the word AI because AI is a marketing term. And as long as we're using the word AI, we're playing in their argument, just like and the soul of an artist, right? One of the biggest things I hear is like, well, AI art has no soul, okay? I don't even believe people have souls. Like, I don't believe in these spiritual metaphysical energies, so that can't be what distinguishes us from AI. Like, we need to come to a a better conclusion, a better argument. And the only way we can do that really is by getting into the theory, which is the one thing that AI doesn't have. There is no theory for AI art. There is, they will never come to a collective kind of vision for a movement because they're not artists. <laughs> they're really not, you know, it, they're picture makers. They are copywriters, you know, these are jobs that AI makes easier. And that's totally fine. I don't think people should work that hard either. But I believe art serves a different purpose than making money and and uh, generating income. Uh, this disgusting word, passive income. Um, I, I think there are better uses for AI besides art. Like we have enough artists. Let's do something else with this technology. Mm -hmm. I think you made an excellent point. And I think people can use that in a lot of aspects of life is to think of things. If you start viewing things as marketing and like in a marketing kind of, not a marketing mindset, but like understanding like marketing and capitalism, if you look at all these things and I think you can dissect it a lot better. And then if we think more in the terms of, you said like art theory and stuff like that, I think not every issue, but a lot of issues <laughs> would be solved if we kind of changed our way of thinking. But, you know, it's hard. It's hard when we live in this society where capitalism and marketing are everywhere. And, you know, we have to kind of deprogram de ourselves and think in a different way. And um, I think you can use AI effectively if you are thinking in that kind of more theory, more creative way rather than this kind of quick marketing capitalist pushing out product type of way um my last question for you was how do you want to see ai used in the future especially when it comes to art um i think in in general terms i am okay with AI as as the prediction machine, as the artificial communication, and as the um, kind of the the language model, right? Like it it does really great job at translating things from one thing to another. The translation process is very good. It translates text to image images being its own kind of like language that we share it, it translates 
globally languages across the world like it can be really good for accessibility it can be really good for people with disabilities but those people aren't uh they aren't good sources of revenue for the companies that control these technologies google microsoft facebook you know these companies um who are investing so much money and hoping for a large return are making them for the people who are historically online and historically have access to the internet and historically have access to the machines that make these technologies possible. And we all know who these groups are. It's not a mystery that the same crypto bros and the same like people who were hounding about NFTs look the same are from the same countries, have the same taste in a type of image. Um, it's because it was made for them. It reflects them. So these technologies reflecting the world may be good for us. It takes a, a screenshot of the way that we're using the internet, what's on the internet and what we need from the internet or like want um, and so I, I guess I don't really, I don't really think AI needs to be in our, I mean, we can't uninvent this technology, of course, um, if artists are going to use it. And I, I certainly will keep using it to criticize it. The only good thing to do with AI right now is keep criticizing it and eventually someone will find a very good purpose for it um but at the cost of the lives of so many people um it has such a great impact on the world like do we need to make ai better does it need to keep improving like the biggest problem right now with the innovations in AI are that we don't have enough chips to make it possible. There is a chip race between America and China to be able to, you know, and it's companies like we Foxconn in China and Intel in America, like we're in a new type of almost space race for AI to be able to manufacture this new global technology why? Because it's a surveillance technology. That's all it really is at the end of the day. It's a new form of surveillance. And if we're asking it to predict our desires and how we want to see the world, eventually they'll be able to sell that to us. And so it's it's a really good machine right now for making money. So if these so-called artists want to use it to make a quick buck, we're in this get your bag era where it's un an unquestioned good for poor people to get paid, even if that means at the expense of someone who's being taken advantage of in a part of the world that will never be able to access this technology. So as a mirror, AI is a very good mirror for um, the world that we currently live in the selfishness of creative people and creative workers and artists and um 
I guess, the many ways that old harmful ideas will just keep coming back up. They're just going to keep coming back up and we need to uh, be just as quick at criticizing them and and coming up with ways to protect ourselves and protect each other from this technology. Oh, that's awesome. I I I was I was interested in AI for a while and kind of the rhetoric around it and the criticism around it. And I think when you look it up online, a lot of the same type of criticism, valid criticism, but the same type of criticism kind of pops up when you are researching it. And the points that you made today, you know, go beyond what kind of is at the surface level. Um, so I thank you, Adrian, for coming on today and, and talking about AI because um, it's it's a prevalent matter in you know society today and and a very big topic that everyone's interested in. And I think we all need to kind of dig a little bit deeper because there's a lot more than I think what we just kind of see on the surface of what can happen with this type of technology. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. If I could just uh, like go off on one more quote. Um, oh, I love it. Do it. <laughs> by, uh, this is my favorite quote about AI uh, by Vinya Udya Prabhu an AI researcher, I might have butchered that name, but uh, feeding AI systems on the world's beauty, ugliness, and cruelty, but expecting it to reflect only the beauty is a fantasy. Um, and I, I, uh, it, it will only probably more show those other two parts, the ugliness and cruelty, as we learn more about AI and we keep learning about it we we can't stop learning about ai uh so we can criticize it better um so thank you so much for having me oh thank you again adrian and um is there a place where people can find what you're currently up to and the work that you're currently doing right now yeah i'm um i the only social media that i have right now are uh my instagram and facebook um at a messino.i um i'm on youtube at uh am or uh, adrian messino and you can find my website adrian messino illustration um so that's it thank you again adrian for coming on um this was alex sharp with side street studio arts and thank you again for listening to another episode of connected Connected is a Side Street Studio Arts production. Music by Tanner Melvin. Produced by Nick Mataragas. To find out more about Connected and all the great things Side Street Studio Arts offers, please visit sidestreetstudioarts.org.